This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. It's not new. When I talk with members that, you know, we're talking about things we talked about over decades ago and with the execution of these things or really the ability to do this are becoming more expansive across the country. Some are a little bit more advanced. Some still break down because sometimes you just don't have the consistency that tends to occur with large organizations. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Trevor Durin. You have seen recent episodes where I'm tapping into different team members across SG2 and Vizian who spend a lot of their time on the phone or meeting in person with our health system members. It's a great way to get a lens into things that are top of mind for those teams. And I tried to do that across a bunch of different groups. Now we're going to go a little deeper. I have my service line colleagues, Corey Jones from our cancer team, Stephanie Snyder from Behavioral Health, and Chad Geese from CV to drill down into some of the themes we've heard across other teams and see how it's playing out across service lines or maybe being implemented across service lines. All three of you, thank you so, so much for joining. Let's start with consumerism, a huge one, but the leader of our consumer innovation team recently said, when you ask who's working on this, everyone raises their hand. When you ask who has something to share that they've actually made progress on, all the hands go down. How's that playing out across service lines? Corey, what are you hearing in cancer? Yeah, thanks, Trevor. I think a lot of what we talk about in cancer, given the fact that cancer care, it can be very fragmented. And there's a lot of entry points into how treatments are being provided or service or care is being delivered. And so really consumers are looking for that continuous, coordinated, seamless type care opportunity, but recognizing that they're going to be at different parts of their journey. So as we talk with members, a lot of that is going around kind of specifically about how they offer that opportunity to engage the patients in that particular part of their journey, but also from the front to the back end. So really that screening, detection, prevention, as well as all the way through treatments and then really supportive care on the back end. So really having kind of a message and a narrative that helps support those patients in that and really attracts them, especially from the expertise that is such an important part of cancer. It always is a little bit of a trick for a lot of programs. Some have more of the robust capabilities to attract consumers in different types of diseases, whereas others don't, but they still have an opportunity to attract those consumers or those patients in their cancer journey. Corey, is that new or has this been like a 10-year journey for cancer service line. It's not new. When I talk with members that, you know, we're talking about things we talked about over decades ago and with the execution of these things or really the ability to do this are becoming more expansive across the country. Programs are getting better at certain parts of that, but we still have the same conversations. How do we attract patients? How do we ensure that they can come to us knowing that they have the quality of care and capabilities? But every program's in a different part of that journey. Some are a little bit more advanced. Some still break down because sometimes you just don't have the consistency that tends to occur with larger organizations. It's going to be an ongoing. Some nuances, some new technologies, new capabilities with imaging and digital components are all going to play into that place. So we see some advancements in that area for sure. Stephanie, how about you? Behavioral health is, as a service line, so different from cancer, but it's one that, at least from someone who doesn't know much as perspective, has changed a lot in the last couple of years. How's it changing regarding consumerism? Oh, gosh, huge. A large part of the consumerism factor for behavioral health has to do with virtual care. And the virtual forecast across the decade that we provide here at SG2 is demonstrates that around half, give or take on the market, will still continue to be virtual by the year 2033. It'll ebb and flow in different markets, and it certainly has to do a little bit with provider preferences and a lot to do with consumer preferences. As we think about it, there's a lot of reasons why, besides the obvious things like conveniences, no time off of work, no babysitter needed, those kinds of things are obvious and they're wonderful. But there's also other things at play 
behind the scenes, such as a lot of employers, including Vizient, are offering behavioral health services to their employees. They're providing access largely through online platforms, thinking through that virtual aspect here. This improves overall well-being. It's also an employee retention strategy. Happy employees are employees that stay at work. They're also employees that do better work. There's been study after study that show that when people are calm and they have a good work-life balance and low anxiety and depression, they do better work. It's in the best interest of employers to get ahead of it. And then consumers, again, they really like this opportunity to see a provider for meds or counseling virtually. Also, there's still a lot of stigma that exists. I was on site with a health system recently in the Northeast. And one of the things they mentioned was a certain outpatient clinic, sort of out in the country a little bit. It has a small town vibe. And because everybody knows everybody, if you are parked at the mental health clinic, everybody knows that you have a mental health issue. And so there's some stigma still attached to it. And I saw something similar when I was on site out West. Last year, a community wouldn't allow an outpatient program in the area because they thought that it brought more mental health patients to the area. Consumerism is a big play on the where and the how that we're delivering care in the behavioral health space. Trevor, what's interesting is consumerism can often be attributed to low acuity services. If you think about urgent care, freestanding ED, things that don't require ongoing disease management or follow-up. But what we're hearing from Corey and from Stephanie and what I'm seeing in the CV space is that there's a consumerism play even for some of these complex, chronic, high-acuity conditions. If I go back a few years to a survey that SG2 took of 25,000 people, not patients, but people, the baby boomer generation and the silent generation, the biggest barrier to receiving healthcare or to interacting with healthcare is access to specialists. And that speaks to our areas that we all work within these complex service lines. We could also bring in neurosciences into that discussion or orthopedics into that discussion. And there really is a play for consumerism within these service lines, but it does mean something different than what we would think of traditionally in the retail space of healthcare. Trevor, we also have to define what a consumer is too. And as service line leaders, we're always trying to try to understand it's the physician, it's the payer, it's the patient, it's the family. And so there's elements of how you approach that that we talk with a lot of members that understanding how we advise and how we work with members to understand how to attract those or build those relationships, especially with that subspecialty expertise that Chad pointed out. I think it's been a critical part of the discussions we've had and moves programs even farther forward. Yeah, you could imagine, Corey, the challenge that a patient has navigating a cardio-oncology program on their own. It requires a provider-driven approach that does have a consumerism bend when you're taking the lead on managing the various appointments for a patient going through that care path or that journey. That's really good. Thanks for pulling that thread, Chad, and connecting them all together. That's really helpful. We're going to flip to the other perspective and look at it from a systems perspective. So many systems were able to coordinate and make decisions quickly about distribution of services during the pandemic, and some have tried to keep that momentum going. When systems are really committed to it, we can call it systemness, really starting to work as a system, thinking about really hard decisions around service distribution. How are you seeing that play out across service lines? 
Before we jump to this topic, though, the connecting the dots between behavioral health and the variety of service lines that we all work in is as important a consumer-based approach or a consumerism approach than anything. As Stephanie, you've seen the impact on total cost of care when a patient has a chronic condition like cardiovascular disease plus a behavioral health condition. I'd be remiss if we didn't point out that connection, and I don't think it exists at nearly enough health systems or within nearly enough service lines today. There's a lot of room for opportunity there. You're right. And as we think about the word systemness, to me, that means how does my service line flow throughout a system? But to your point, maybe systemness means how do all the service lines flow together and work together to provide the best patient access? I've been at SG2 now for 10 years, and we've been talking about this topic for 10 years or more, because I'm sure this conversation was going on before I arrived here. But it's really the last few years that organizations have really put some effort into it in a meaningful way to make change. And I've noticed this up at multiple planning retreats recently. On the consulting side of our business, we've seen this be one of the key strategies that organizations are pushing for to try and act on. And so this is a big rock to push, and they're finally getting after it, which is encouraging. We've used the term systemness, and it has a little bit of a softer connotation than service distribution or service rationalization, because we're really talking about efficiency. We're talking about efficiency. We're talking about optimization of volume quality relationships. We're talking about ensuring that truly the right patient at the right time in the right place in the right setting by the right provider is at play within your health system. It's encouraging to see organizations really rolling up their sleeves and addressing systemness. It does mean something different, might mean a hub and spoke type model at some organizations, might mean consolidation at others, but that's going to depend on service line. It's going to depend on the size of the system, the market, and we have been really well positioned to support all of those nuances and market dynamics and organizational dynamics, given some of the frameworks that we've built out over the last 10 to 20 years at SG2, the system of care framework, basic to comprehensive framework. We leverage those every day around this topic. And sometimes systemness to an organization might mean doing the same thing everywhere the same way. And I've worked with some organizations who try that and they find pretty quickly it doesn't always work. Now, if an organization has facilities across uniform geography, then perhaps. But if you're across different markets, rural and urban and suburban and different states and different politics and different populations, Systemness is going to mean something different. It can mean a continuity of services, but it doesn't necessarily need to mean the exact same service everywhere you go. Corey, is there a different spin on systemness from cancer's perspective? No, I think that all that's been stated by Chad and Stephanie speak to it. From my experience as well, that the systemness is a state of mind to some point, but it's built into the cultural that we're going to try to understand how we can work together to provide certain services, expertise, capabilities that expand across the larger footprint. So having a state of mind about how you're going to do that and create kind of the avenues and platforms for that to occur, I think is a critical part. And as we talk with a lot of programs within cancer specifically, you can do that a certain disease or you can do it across a multitude of different services. You can look at it from an operational standpoint. So again, you can look at quality of care and clinical pathways and how you're going to kind of approach maybe breast cancer care or how you're going to provide survivorship 
Or what's your workforce look like from an infusion standpoint? How are you going to provide pharmaceuticals or infusion services? So are you going to do that collectively? Or are you going to do it individually? Incentivizing that kind of cultural component is such an important part of systemness. And I think in cancer, again, I'm beholden to cancer in a way that I think is very unique, given the fragmentation and the multitude of different services that need to be provided across different kind of cancers. It challenges it, but that's clearly the opportunity and uh, a strategy I think programs are trying to adapt to it. Well, the next topic will kind of prove how much systems are really tackling that. Let's talk about something that, for me, is a topic every discussion I have with leadership teams, and that's ambulatory shift. And my hunch is it's hitting your three service lines in really different ways. But prove it. Chad, why don't you start with CV? Sure. This one is a topic on the agenda of almost any discussion I have with a member at the moment. The ambulatory shift is interesting for a number of reasons. We get compared a lot to what's happening in other service lines. Orthopedics is one that comes up. And the fast shift that has occurred in the orthopedic space is pointed to as an example. However, there are a number of clinical, CON, physician alignment, and even financial considerations that are different within this ambulatory shift of CV procedures like diagnostic cath, PCI, EEP procedures, vascular procedures that make this into its own thing. We can look to other service lines, but this one requires a different approach in my view. As we look at the current state, we're pretty early in our shift of CV procedures outside of the four walls of the hospital. Nationally, there are markets where, and pockets within markets where this has occurred more than in others, but nationally, we're still really early in this transition. I like to describe this as a, a market development phase. We're looking at which organizations are looking to see if this is the right strategy for them, what the impact is on not just volumes, but margins and revenue as you take cases outside of the hospital outpatient department and move to a lower reimbursing site of care. It's a hot topic, but there really are some good, sound reasons to pursue this. How many of you all on this podcast talk to providers who have plenty of capacity on the hospital campus to do the work that they need to do? Nobody at any retreat that I've been to recently has raised their hand and, and like, yeah, we're, we've got room to grow. No, they're all at capacity. And could this be one way to relieve some of the pressure and the constraints that are limiting access on the hospital campus to build out an ambulatory strategy that includes an ASC? That's possible. And in some markets, there really are opportunities there to meet the demand in the market, meet the needs of the patient and the organization, but win, win, win to build out a strategy that includes an ASC. It's not going to be right for every hospital or every organization in every market. And even two hospitals within the same market might have very different outcomes from a strategy like this. But it takes rolling up your sleeves and looking at the data, assessing your physician alignment and your referral patterns to put this one into play. Corey, how's it similar or different for cancer? The big question we always get and, and have conversations with members is around infusion services in the ambulatory environment. Where is it going from? Are they going to different clinics or multi-specialties programs? 
What does that look like from a pharmaceutical standpoint or a pharmacy standpoint? We continue to see that shift occurring, although centralization of certain services like pharmacy, closer infusions, right, like in the hot D or, or in the hospital tend to be kind of the play at times. But we also know that that continues to push the cost and payers are steering patients to these more lower sites of care. The other element that's playing here, as we've talked a lot about and we're seeing in this space, is around private equity and what that is doing specifically on standing up these networks that specifically in medical oncology where these services can be provided offsite in these type of ambulatory settings and really disrupting to some point. And I'm not necessarily saying disrupting in a bad way, but there creates opportunities for fragmentation, coordination of care that really is challenging this space. As we look at ambulatory shifts, where is it happening within the cancer journey for patients and who is actually providing these services and is it connected to a larger system that's going back to the system this component, I think is an important piece that we're watching watching and monitoring. But there are those influencing factors that are definitely play here. And so we'll have to wait and see over the next year or so. We definitely have some new policies coming out with uh, CMS's enhanced oncology model, and what that might look like in this space as well, and how that shifts and changes some of the tactics or strategies that we're talking with members about. Clearly an area, infusion's definitely the highest priority of conversation right now. Yeah, Corey, not to mention a few states rolling back CON, and I think others looking at it, that could be a another nudge in this direction. Stephanie, what about behavioral health? We know the shift to virtual story. Are there other side of care shift stories? Yeah, there is, although they're very different from CV and cancer. So ambulatory shift in behavioral health happened years ago. And for those who aren't up to speed on the historical aspect of behavioral health, about 10 or 12 years ago, we as a country decided to deinstitutionalize behavioral health care with the goal of we're going to create more ambulatory opportunity. We did half of that. We moved a lot of the patients out, but we failed to create that ambulatory access. And over the course of the years and layering on a global pandemic, we now are seeing significantly increased acuity. And that's really led by an ambulatory shift that never properly shifted for many communities. And so inpatient services were simply closed and never opened. And leading to less outpatient overall means the patients that normally would be mild to moderate acuity and outpatient and able to function properly in society have now become higher acuity. They enter the emergency department at greater volumes. They need more inpatient. And so that full continuum is needed. Now, I will say we're getting better. We're starting to reopen some of those inpatient beds as we realize that we were too presumptuous in closing them. So that's a positive. But frankly, there's also a need for inpatient beds to really round out the financial modeling for behavioral health. Inpatient behavioral health is sort of where the money is made in the field. And so if you just focus on the behavioral health outpatient space, many organizations, but not all, they're going to lose their margin there. And of course, nobody wants to do that. So the way to really get around that and to really round out the financial picture for behavioral health is a combination of inpatient and outpatient, both built out at a scale that makes sense. So not having a couple of beds or a couple of therapists, but really developing services at a scale that makes sense for access, for finances, for the hospital needs. And it all comes together These have downstream and widespread implications for other service lines. Behavioral health is unique in that it touches every other service line. 
This is not something that's a one-off for patients. Not every patient is going to have a cardiac issue or have cancer in their lifetime, but most patients are going to have some form, even if it's mild, of a behavioral health condition over their lifetime. And that's not meant to scare anybody. It's just the reality of the situation. It's a global impact. When we develop these services and we're proactive, we not only decrease acuity, which has become an increasing concern, but we really are preventative in providing access. And that's where the shift to ambulatory really should be focused. It's being preventative to impact those other service lines. Team, thanks so much. That was terrific. The river took so many different little tributaries along the way, but the themes are still kind of the same central themes. I really appreciate you sharing what you've heard from our members. And I always appreciate you sharing your perspective with our listeners. So I look forward to having you back on SG2 Perspectives very soon. Thanks, Trevor. Thanks a lot, Trevor. Thanks, Trevor. Thanks so much for listening to SG2 Perspectives. As always, I really value your feedback, input, comments, or ideas for episodes. And you can reach us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Additionally, I recommend that you check out some of the other Vizient podcasts, which cover a range of clinical and operational areas. Those can all be found at vizientinc.com backslash podcasts. Mm-hmm.